am not I thy lord? Then I must be thy lady. Ill met by moonlight. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Nathan Stone, and today we will be looking at the King and Queen in the Wood, the avatars of Aisha and Kurnos, Orion and Ariel. These are a couple of characters that have changed dramatically through their introduction in 4th edition to the end times in 8th edition. Before we dive in to our Monarchs of Athol Lauren, I have some news and some hobby to share with you today. First up, I have been working on all sorts of things recently, including mostly finishing off those 2nd edition orcs that I had been working on. I've really just been picking away at them because I kind of lost a little bit of impetus on them, but they are so close to done now that... I figure I will pretty much finish them off before I actually go and play with them for the first time. I've moved on to some 3rd edition 40k, and I'm putting together a very simple, classic army of Salamander Space Marines to do some Battle for Armageddon scenarios and play with them a little bit. And then, after our last episode on the great themed lists of 6th edition Warhammer Fantasy... Scott and GJ and I decided that we had to do something because we had our brains were just too full of stuff and we needed to have an outlet for that. So we've decided to do a little bit of a Storm of Chaos summer campaign for ourselves and with our gaming group here. GJ, of course, will be joining us remotely. We're not exactly sure how the campaign's going to work yet, but... We are all very excited to do a little bit of something. I haven't 100% narrowed down what I'm going to be playing. I could do Cult of Slanesh quite easily. I have all of the models built and painted that I would need for that army. But because I have everything I need, I just don't have a lot of interest in doing that. So right now I'm thinking of either doing Archaeon's Horde or Grimgore's Ardboys. I'm always happy to paint up more black orcs, and for Archaeon's Horde, I have a ton of the 6th to 8th edition Chaos Warrior models that I should really do something with, and it'd be really quick and easy to make up an army for them as well, and it would be a neat little hobby project. Not that I need any more hobby projects. We'll be sure to keep you updated on whatever happens with that wonderful little idea that we've had. I am ready to party like it's 2004 this summer. Hopefully we can get that going. In the news category, just a couple of things to talk about this week. Firstly, I got my COVID vaccine, and I'm very happy to have had that. It's looking like right now that my second shot will be sometime in August, which is fine because my arm is very, very sore at the moment. I always have that reaction with flu shots and anything like that where they kind of jab you in the muscle of the arm. Always get really sore after that, but I am glad to have my shot. And if it speeds up the opening of things around here, so much the better. 
We are finally opening up in Nova Scotia, just a little bit, teeny weeny bit. We've got a, what feels like a million stage opening process, but things are actually moving forward. The lockdown hasn't completely ended, but some of the restrictions are lifted. We are very hopeful that maybe by the end of this month, we'll be able to bring you streaming games and battle reports on the YouTube channel once again. Speaking of the YouTube channel, the Let's Play Chaos Gate video that I did has done really, really well, at least for a video that we have put up on the channel. It's got closing in on 600 views, which I know in YouTube terms is basically nothing, but for a little niche channel like ours is kind of cool. So I'll definitely be doing a follow-up video on that. I don't know when that's coming out. Maybe the week that this comes out, if I can get my ducks in a row. Otherwise, probably the week after. But please do check that one out if you haven't. It's a lot of fun. The second video will be me trying to play the second level. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that things won't go as well as they did in the first. That's going to do us for hobby and news this week. Now, let's wander into the woods. Orion and Ariel are an interesting pair. They're a very different, very strange kind of couple, and they are unique amongst the elves, four spirits, and demigods of the Warhammer world. There's nothing quite like them. They've also changed a lot over the eras, not only in terms of rules, but in backstory as well. And this was something that was a little bit of a blind spot for me. I hadn't really taken the time to deep dive into the last Wood Elf book that came out towards the end of 8th edition. And when I did, I found some really interesting things. So I knew I had to do an episode on them just to illustrate the changes and to talk a little bit about their story because they have one of the most interesting stories, I think. They might be the most interesting couple in the Warhammer world. We're going to start our look back in 4th edition. The Warhammer Army's Wood Elves. This one came out in 1996, which puts it at the tail end of 4th edition. You can see a lot of the hallmarks of what would become the 5th edition design. It's a little bit more streamlined than the earlier 4th ed books, and it really fits in much better once you see some of those 5th ed books, the things that would come later. This is a glorious book filled with incredible art, stories, and characters. But you know me, I'm going to say that about any Hero Hammer book. So, take that for what you will. The first thing that we should touch on before we get to our king and our queen is a little bit of history of Athel Lorin. Athel Lorin was a forest that was discovered in the New World by the elves during their period of colonization. And the lore for Athel Lorin has changed quite a bit over the eras as well. But in this early era, it is a magical wood. And it's always going to be a magical wood, but it is a little bit less, perhaps, strange than it would become in later editions. When the elves found Athel Lorin, they kind of knew that there was something special about it, elves being very sensitive to things like magic, and they tried to explore Athel Lorin 
on a number of occasions, and a lot of the elves that went into the forest never really came back or came back insane or broken in some horrible way. It wasn't until the War of the Beard or the War of Vengeance between the elves and the dwarves in the New World that elves first started living in the Forest of Lorne. The Forest of Lorne is not just an amalgamation of trees that become the forest, it is a living thing. And all of the creatures within it are subtly changed by the forest itself. And we'll see this later on with the wood elves themselves. But the forest invited the elves into its boughs so that they could help protect it from the dwarfs. In the beginning, the forest was as hostile to the elves as it was to any other foreign creature. But the elves just couldn't leave the forest alone, so they settled in communities beside the forest because they were drawn to it instinctually. And when the War of the Beard and the War of Vengeance broke out, the forest invited them in by opening paths so that they could come in and help it defend itself. The spirits of the forest were very divided on this, and the elves in general. It took them a long time to actually earn the trust of some of the spirits. Some of them have never trusted the elves and will never trust the elves, and some of them are a little bit more open and friendly. Most of the forest spirits, the dryads in particular, are quite spiteful, nasty creatures, and they have really no issue with being spiteful and nasty and hostile to the elves as well. This alliance between the elves and the forest spirits in 4th edition, it is the strongest that we will see it. The lore will change over the years to make it so that it's more of an uneasy alliance, and the elves are still occasionally in danger from the forest spirits, but they kind of have an accord. In 4th edition, this relationship is a lot stronger between the elves and the forest spirits, and the forest itself is a much simpler and a, a less terrifying place than it would become later on. If we look at the map of Atholoran in 4th edition, it is a very simple forest, honestly. Like, there's not a lot to it. We have different groves, different glades, the Oak of Ages, and of course the King's Glade, the Tree of Woe, the ash groves, the birch glade, the pine crags. These are just different types of trees. The meadow glades. It actually looks very nice. And Athalorn is going to change a lot between editions. It's really, really interesting. The reason why we start off talking about Athalorn is because it is so important to the characters of Orion and Ariel, particularly Ariel. But let's look at their original lore. Now, Orion and Ariel were youths from different clans that had come together into the Forest of Lorien in those very first days. And at the very first council of the elves in Lorien, they went ahead and wandered off, as two young lovers might. And they walked around the Oak of Ages. As they were doing this, they found an opening that led under the oak itself, and they disappeared into it. Now, 
the elves at the time had a lot going on. They were threatened by the dwarves, who were about to turn the Forest of Lorien into a pile of matches, and they were also beset by hordes of orcs, who were a threat looming on the horizon. So while the elves of the forest thought something terrible had happened to Ariel and Orion, they couldn't spare a lot of time and resources looking for them. Even the elven mages couldn't divine their location. They were given up for lost, because sometimes the forest of Atholoran, people just disappear in there, and they're never seen or heard from again. This is a magical forest full of spiteful forest spirits. Things happen. And unfortunately, they thought that something tragic had happened to Ariel and Orion. After Ariel and Orion had disappeared and the search had to be called off, there was a large dwarven force that was ready to march into Atholorn. The elves and the forest spirits fought together for the first time, and they defeated the dwarfs. That winter, the orc hordes showed up, and this was a real problem because, well, the forest spirits are very lethargic in winter. They can't easily be roused, and even when they are roused, they're not very powerful. So the elves were without their strongest allies. The orcs invaded Athalorn in great numbers, and the elves used the forest to mount various ambushes and hit-and-run attacks, but they couldn't really stop the orc hordes, they just didn't have the numbers. The elves were on the back foot for the entirety of that winter, known as the Winter of Woe. They had been pushed further and further into the forest, until it was worried that the King's Glade in the Oak of Ages may soon come under a attack by the orcs. On the first day of spring, something wondrous happens. The whole forest goes silent. Then, the sound of a great stag, bellowing a challenge, was heard on the wind, and then a huge beast crashing through dead bracken. The elven scouts that saw him first thought that they were seeing none other than their god Kurnus in living form, and they weren't necessarily wrong about that. A very changed Orion had come back to his people, and he had become the avatar of Kurnos. With him he brought the beasts of the forest, braying hounds. His skin had turned green, he stood twice as tall as any elf, and with hooved feet and huge antlers. With him, the forest spirits awoke, as well as the beasts of the forest, and they drove the orcs out of Atholorn. After the battle, the elves followed Kurnus back to an opening in the Oak of Ages. From there, some of them managed to kind of squeeze through the cracks and to the tunnel underneath the oak, and they saw two figures sitting enthroned. It was Ariel and Orion, the young lovers thought lost, and they had changed. They had merged with the gods Aisha and Kurnus, two of the elven pantheon, and the two most tied to both nature and life. Orion and Ariel would emerge from the Oak of Ages to hold court in the Council Glade, 
henceforth known as the Kingsglade. And in 4th edition, their war forms are not their permanent state. And this would change in later editions. But the Kurnos that we see in 4th edition, this is his war form. But he has a more normal elven form, as does Ariel, who we see in her moth aspect. Both of them can change at will between this war form and a more normal elven form. Now, with this change, this melding between elf and god, something interesting had happened. They had become immortal, as you would expect from a creature that has recently become divine, but they were tied to the seasons and to the forest itself, and they would die in the darkest moments of midwinter. The elves would entomb them within the Great Oak of Ages, and then with the first signs of spring, the oak would be reopened, revealing Orion and Ariel regenerated and in full glory. This will also change as we go through the eras to become just Orion dying in the winter months. And something interesting is going to happen with that in later on in the fluff. This is what we get for fourth edition. It's very simple. These are your king and queen in the woods. We have the hunter king and the fairy queen. And they are very interesting characters, even in this era, which is kind of a proto-era for them. They're going to get a lot more complex as we move along. But before we discuss later lore, I think we should look at their profiles as we see them in 4th edition. We're going to start with Orion. Orion will set you back 300 points, plus 50 points for the Spear of Kurnus, 50 points for the Horn of the Wild Hunt, 50 points for the Cloak of Aisha, and you can buy him a pack of baying hounds at 5 points per hound. The hounds aren't bad, honestly. Orion's stat line is Movement 5, Weapon Skill 8, Ballistic Skill 7, Strength 5, Toughness 5, 5 Wounds, Initiative 9, and 5 Attacks, with Leadership 10. He is armed with a Hand Weapon and the Spear of Kurnus. For magic items, he always has to be given his 3 magic items, which puts him at 450 points. He has the following special rules. He causes fear. He has a wild charge, which allows him and any hounds accompanying him, plus d6 to any charge moves he makes during the battle. He has feral savagery, which makes him immune to psychology. And he has divine aura, which gives him a magical save of 4 plus against the effects of any spell cast on him. He has the spear of Kurnus which is really interesting as it can be thrown as well as used in close combat. If it's thrown, it has a range of 8 inches, and there is no long-range penalty. You roll to hit as normal using Orion's Ballistic Skill. If the spear hits an independent model, roll a number of dice equal to the original wound's characteristic of the target. So if the model has 4 wounds, roll 4 dice. Each dice that scores a 4+, plus causes a wound. Thus, the spear may actually impale a mighty creature and slay it outright. This is kind of neat. You're not likely to roll that many 4 pluses, but I've seen it done. And if the spear hits a unit, it acts a lot like a bolt thrower. Each score of 4 plus causes a wound on the unit. Thus, the spear may impale several models as it passes through the ranks. In hand-to-hand -hand combat, roll to hit and to wound as usual. Only magic armor saves can save against wounds inflicted by the spear of Kurnus. Orion cannot throw the spear when he fights in hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
Instead, he stabs with it like a normal spear. Only magical armor can save against wounds inflicted by the Spear of Kurnus, whether it is thrown or used in hand-to-hand combat. A nice little weapon for Orion. He also carries the Horn of the Wild Hunt. Orion carries an enormous hunting horn crafted from the horn of a mighty Auroch, the gigantic wild ox of the forest. Orion may blow the horn in the magic phase, the sound echoing through the forest and over the battlefield, signaling that the wild hunt is on. When the horn is sounded, the nearest enemy unit within 12 inches becomes filled with impending doom and must take a panic test. Orion may not sound the horn if he is in hand-to-hand combat. The blast from the horn is a magic spell, and so can be dispelled. He has the Cloak of Aisha, which was made for him by Queen Ariel, which is very nice. It gives him a special save of 4 plus against every kind of attack. This is not an armor save, so saves against even war machines, breath attacks, and magic weapons that normally allow no save. Finally, he has his pack of braying hounds. And the hounds aren't too bad for 5 points. They are movement 5, weapon skill 4, strength 4, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 3, 1 attack, and leadership 3. Orion is a very interesting character here. 450 points is a lot, but you do get a lot for that. He can certainly deal damage, and with Toughness 5, 5 Wounds, and the Cloak of Aisha, he's not the easiest to put down. With his Hounds there, he can kind of make an interesting unit all of his own. I like him except for his movement of 5. For someone who has grown twice his size and has sweet antelope legs, you'd think he'd be able to move a little bit faster than he does. All in all, though, not the worst character I've seen in the Hero Hammer era. Certainly a fun character to mess around with, I think. Next up, we have Ariel, Mage Queen of Lauren. She is 366 points, plus 50 points for the Wand of the Witch Elm, plus 25 points for the Acorns of the Oak of Ages, plus 25 points for the Dart of Doom, and plus 25 points for Berry Wine. She has a movement of 5, a weapon skill of 4, ballistic skill of 4, strength of 4, toughness of 4, 4 wounds, initiative 9, 3 attacks, and leadership 10. Her magic items are always the same, she has to take each one of them. She is a little bit more expensive than Orion, coming in at just shy of 500 points. And she has a load of special rules. She has her moth wings that allow her to fly. She has a divine aura, which is the same as Orion's, which is that 4 plus against any spell cast on her. She has an interesting way of attacking. She does not use a weapon, but attacks with her voice. In hand-to-hand combat, she utters a shrill, piercing screech in the face of the foe, which can wound, stun, or even kill. Roll to hit and wound using Ariel's weapon skill and strength as normal which is weapon skill 4, strength 4, so yeah. There can be no armor save against the Screech, not even for magical armor. So there's a little something there, you still don't want her in close combat. She has the dodge special rule. Ariel does not carry a shield or wear armor, instead she relies on her amazing ability to flit out of the way of missiles and weapon blows, darting aside instantly and deftly as a dragonfly. Ariel can dodge in hand-to-hand combat and against missiles, but not spells on the roll of a 4, 5, or 6. This roll to dodge is never modified by saving throw modifiers, and also applies to war engine attacks, or indeed any attack that uses a template as long as it is not a spell. 
In this case, if Ariel dodges successfully, move her to the edge of the template. This is very similar to Orion's Cloak. Same basic idea with that 4 plus special save, just a little different in practice. She has the Wand of the Witch Elm. This is quite an interesting special item. It stores a spell. It stores one of Ariel's spells. And before the battle, you must declare which of your spells is the one inscribed on the wand. Ariel is a mage lord, by the way, so she is going to have four spells. The spell that is inscribed on the wand can only be cast using the wand, but will not require power cards. You may inscribe a spell of any power on the wand. Do you want to cast a power three spell for free every turn? Because this is how you cast a power three spell for free every turn. Oh, also, the wand is never drained. So many magical items in this era stop working on the roll of a one or a two after they do their thing. This wand does not care. It's got thousands of years worth of magic in it. This is an awesome item. I love this so much and is honestly a big part of why you might want to take Ariel. She has the acorns of the Oak of Ages, and it can create a wood 12 inches in diameter on the battlefield centered on Ariel, which is quite a way to manipulate the battlefield, as a foot-long diameter wood is not, not a small thing. The wood is magical, however, and can be dispelled with the Drain Magic card. It will remain on the battlefield, however, until Drain Magic is played, at which point the magical trees shrivel and die. She has the Dart of Doom. (laughs) This is an interesting one. This only appears here, by the way, the Dart of Doom. I mean, she's only got two editions worth of profiles that we're going to go over, but this one does not appear again. The Dart can be thrown once per battle and has a range of 12 inches. Roll to hit using Ariel's Ballistic Skill. If the Dart hits a model, it causes one automatic wound, which can only be saved by magical armor. If the wound is not saved, the dart sucks the energy out of the victim, draining their strength characteristic by d6 to a minimum of 1. It's a weird little thing, honestly. And with her ballistic skill, she's only got ballistic skill 4. You've got a pretty good chance of missing with it. It's a 1 use only. It's just not really that good, but it'd be fun if it hits. And if it hits something powerful, like a monster or a character, you could have a lot of fun just draining 3 or 4 points of strength out of something like that. The last one is the berry wine. This is a magical and intoxicating brew made from the berries of magical trees. It is so potent that more than enough can be held in an acorn cup. An acorn cup is adorable, by the way. The wine can be given to any one character in contact with Ariel in the magic phase, or she can drink it herself. It can only be used once, since the cup will be drained with a single sip. Any character who has suffered wounds who drinks the wine will instantly be invigorated and will regenerate d6 wounds. This cannot bring the drinker's wounds characteristics above its original level, nor can it revive slain models. This is incredible, and allows her to stay alive all the longer. I like Ariel in this edition. I think this is the edition you take Ariel in. She did get a 6th edition profile, Not in the 6th edition book, but in a supplement. And as we'll see, it's not quite as neat as her 4th edition incarnation. This is really where you want to take her. I think she's awesome. This is the 4th edition look at these two. I think they're both interesting. Special characters really mostly were bad in 4th and 5th edition. 
And there were some that were pretty decent, but they all paled in comparison to the characters that you could make yourselves. These two, however, I think both could see some play. I think they could both have some use on the battlefield and not be anchors around your army. My thought would be to take Ariel. I like what she can do. I love the ability to store a spell in her wand and cast it for free every turn. That seems very, very powerful. Beyond that, this is the simplest we'll see these two. The simplest we'll see them in terms of lore, relationship, and as characters as well. Next up, we're going to hit on 6th edition. The 6th edition Wood Elf Army book, released in 2005. Now, this is an almost decade difference between these two books, and it really does show. Warhammer being a completely different beast by this point than it had been nine years ago. The change in the design and the feel of the Wood Elves is evident in this book. Everything got a little bit more grimdark in fantasy. The Wood Elves took that turn as well. A lot of the lore around the Wood Elves made them a little bit more like the spirits of the forest themselves, always walking this tightrope between light and shadow, between their role as protectors of the forest and the creatures within it, and the darker side of that elven personality that was evidenced through things like the wild hunt of Orion every year. The wild hunt wasn't given a lot of attention in the 4th edition book. In the 6th edition book, it plays a much more sinister and central role in the Wood Elf lore. In midsummer every year, Orion and his wild riders, as well as many of the beasts and forest spirits, spill out from beyond Athel Loren's bounds. They hunt and slaughter anyone they find beyond their boundaries. The main victims of the wild hunt are the Bretonian provinces nearest Athel Loren. They suffer greatly every year, and they have really no recompense for these creatures and spirits of the forest that seem to come from nowhere. The only warning is the blasting of Orion's horn in the distance, and then they're upon them, the elves and the beasts slaughtering at will. It's a really dark aspect to the wood elves, and it's something that just wasn't a part of the story in 4th edition. The alliance between Bretonia and the Wood Elves becomes more complicated as we move along throughout the history of Warhammer Fantasy, and by 6th edition, Athaloran is a realm on Bretonia's borders that is a bit of a double-edged sword. No invading army has a chance of making it through the magical forest with all of its protectors and its fairy queen and hunter king, but at the same time, Every year, Bretonia has to endure these wild hunts, these unprovoked attacks on its people and its lands for elven sport, because the spirit of Kurnos that lives within Orion compels him to do this. In 6th edition, Athel Loren has become a more complex place. 
And we can see this in the description, but more than anything in the map of Athelorn. There's a lot of interesting ideas that the writers had that have been placed in Athelorn as well. And Athelorn is a strange forest where time runs, or sometimes doesn't run at all. And we'll get into how this works or doesn't work more in 8th edition, because 8th edition really compartmentalizes parts of Athelorn, and we haven't quite got there yet. Some of the things that were added in 6th edition include the Wildwood, which is in the southeastern corner of Athelorn, and is a place given over to those forest spirits that cannot live alongside the elves. They have become too hostile and just too wild to control. And the elves have erected boundary stones alongside the Wildwood to keep them at bay. The forest is a much darker place in 6th edition than it is in 4th. We also see things like the deep forests of Durthru. Durthru himself is probably worth an episode one of these times. The hills of the dead, the vaults of winter. The vaults of winter I will mention when we get to 8th edition because it is a terrifying place. But the feeling I want you to get here is that in each edition, the forest grows darker and more sinister. And with that, so too do Orion and Ariel. They and the wood elves have become a part of the forest. And I mean that in almost a literal sense as well as figuratively. When the elves adopted Lauren as their home, the forest was able to change them in certain ways and make them something different than your average elf. A high elf and a dark elf have different philosophies, maybe a bit of a different look about them, but through it all they are elves. They have the same basic physiology. The wood elves are something a little bit different by 6th edition, and it will only become more and more exacerbated as we move through. Their spirits have become mingled with the forest and vice versa, and we'll see that in some of the units like the Wild Riders themselves that have the forest spirit rule. It's a really interesting evolution of this army, and something to move them beyond the classic Tolkien Sylvan Elves, or even the other elves of the Old World. Now let's talk about our king and queen in this edition. Ariel, unfortunately, does not make the cut for being in this book. And I really don't like that, and I don't like the fact that she's not in the 8th edition book, especially the 8th edition book, because by 8th edition, the lore of the Wood Elves is basically the Ariel show. Orion takes more and more of a backseat lore-wise, even though he gets to be the character that has a model and supported rules. I was able to scare up Ariel's 6th edition rules that she got outside of this publication, but for now, let's look at Orion, King in the Wood. I'm going to read to you his lore from his unit entry here, because I think it is a very good summation of the character, and illustrates a couple of the changes between editions. Orion is the consort king of Atholoran. At the height of his power in midsummer, Orion is a terrifying being of majesty and power. He stands over ten feet tall, and his lithe, green, tinged body ripples with barely contained anger. As the moons align overhead on Midsummer's Eve, a beautiful cloak crafted by his queen is draped on his shoulders, 
and a great horn of the wild hunt placed reverently before him. As the time of the conjunction draws near, he takes up his weapons from their shrine within the Oak of Ages. At midnight, Athelorin goes utterly silent, not a creature stirring, for all know that the ride of the wild hunt has come. The spirit of Kurnos flares brightly within Orion at this time, stirring the hearts and souls of the wood elves. Savage excitement and restless vigor spreads like wildfire through the forest, as the blaring of his hunting horn resounds through all of Athelorn, and the earth thunders with the pounding of his cloven hooves. Every elf and forest spirit feels the pull of his savagery, and many are overcome by the primal urge to join his wild ride and commit acts of untold savagery and vengeance on their foes. To stand in the path of Orion is to stand before the fury of the storm, and few can resist his awesome power. Nevertheless, the fire of Orion burns but briefly, for just as each spring he is reborn, each winter he must perish. This is the way of all things, and is merely a continuation of the never-ending process of death and rebirth. Orion's power runs rampant each midsummer, Yet each midwinter he voluntarily offers himself up as a sacrifice to the cycle of existence. I really like that description for Orion. Gives you a sense of the power and savagery that possesses him, especially in the summer. Where we start to diverge from the 4th edition lore and into the 6th edition lore is that in the 6th edition lore, it is only he that dies at midwinter and not Ariel, and to ensure Orion's rebirth, an elf must offer his life and become Orion. It is no longer the same elf, the original Orion. Orion has become a medley of personalities, both Kurnos, the original Orion, and now each of these elves in succession that become Orion by sacrificing themselves and get subsumed into his consciousness. And if this sounds familiar to those who play Warhammer 40k and specifically Eldar players, it should, because Orion has become basically the Eldar avatar of Cain, but instead the avatar of Kurnus in fantasy. A lot of the same ideas were borrowed to make Orion a little bit more of a complex character. Let's take a look at Orion's stats. Orion is 575 points. He is movement 9, weapon skill 8, ballistic skill 5, strength 5, toughness 5, 6 wounds, initiative 9, 6 attacks, and leadership 10. Orion has the following special rules. He is a forest spirit, and that gives him quite a few things. He cannot join a non-forest spirit unit. He has a 5 plus ward save, however it cannot be used against magical attacks, and all of his attacks count as being magical, and he is immune to psychology. All of those come with the forest spirit special rule. He has the terror special rule. He has the Spirit of Kurnus, which makes him unbreakable. However, if he's beaten in combat, his essence will begin to fade. Think of it as the crumble rule for undead, and you're right there. However, if he's nearby a wood, the number of wounds that he loses is reduced by one. So that's kind of nice. 
He has the Wild Hunt, which allows you to take Wild Riders of Kurnos as a core choice. And an army led by him must have one unit of Wild Riders, which is mandatory. Glade Guard and Scouts count as special for his armies, and Way Watchers may not be taken at all. That's kind of cool. It, this is basically an alternate list right here, one that we maybe missed because it's in the character rules, but kind of a bonus from last episode. I think it's quite neat. He has his hounds back, Hounds of the Hunt. This time they're 15 points each, so they've gotten quite a bump. And their stats have improved, though. They have movement 9 as well, so they can keep up with Orion. They have weapon skill 4, strength 4, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 4, 1 attack, and leadership 6. I kind of liked them better when they were 5 points, but at least they're super fast this time. For magic items, he has Horn of the Wild Hunt. The first time Orion declares a charge, he sounds the Wild Hunt. All enemies within 18 inches of him must take a panic test. It's potentially quite good. He has the Spear of Kurnos. The Spear of Kurnos is a lot less cool than it was in 4th edition. Now it gives him a plus 2 strength when he charges. Basically a lance for him. Otherwise, it doesn't do much of anything, which is unfortunate. He has the Cloak of Aisha, which adds 2 Dispel Dice to the Wood Elf Dispel Dice Pool. which That is a big change from 4th edition. And he has the Hawk's Talon. And this is a longbow. Which is interesting, because this is added to his character, didn't have a bow before. A longbow with strength 6, and can penetrate ranks in the manner of a bolt thrower. In addition, each unsaved wound caused by the Hawk's Talons becomes d3 wounds rather than 1. And he does not suffer a minus 1 to hit penalty for moving and shooting. So something to throw out as you're thundering towards combat. This Orion, I don't like quite as much as the 4th edition Orion. I think he was a little bit more interesting as far as his on-the-table character goes, and he was definitely cheaper. However, all of the big special characters got a big price bump, and 575 points. Ooh, that's a big one. I do love his movement, however. He is so quick with that movement of 9. You can put him with a unit of Wild Riders and just make the most terrifying cavalry unit of all time, or give him his doggos and have him pal around with those. Heck, you could run him on his own with 6 attacks at weapon skill 8 and strength 5. He can probably take out the front rank of a unit pretty well. And he's on a 40mm base, which makes him pretty easy to sneak into places. Also a big old terror bomb, even without his Horn of the Wild Hunt. So lots of ways to mess with enemy leadership with Orion. All in all, I still kind of like him. Now let's talk a little bit about... Ariel. Ariel becomes more and more central to the Wood Elf story as we go along. And in 6th edition, she gains a nemesis. Everyone needs a good nemesis. Ariel has a pretty good one in Morgor, Master of Skulls. This is a really interesting addition to the lore in that they are almost equal opposites. Ariel, the avatar of Aisha, a bringer of life, of purity, renewal, and Morgor, the crazed beastman who cannot ever properly die and 
just brings mutation and death and corruption wherever he is. This is an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. In 6th edition, we are introduced to their rivalry. And they will meet on a couple of occasions, and even a third one in the 8th edition book. And they've been doing this for quite some time. Because it was only in the decades after the Winter of Woe, which is one of the earliest events in Wood Elf history, when they actually became the Wood Elves, that Ariel felt Morgor's presence when he came into the world. And Morgor is just corruption manifested into the form of a beastman. And where Ariel is so attuned to the natural world, she was able to feel it when he was born, and she gave it a name. Cyanather, the Corrupter. I'm going to call him Morgor, because I like Morgor better, and it rolls off the tongue, but I like that they've even got a proper name for him. Morgor invades Athel Lorne in the early years of Bretonian history. To give it some context, Morgor and Ariel are become very aware of each other's presence, and Morgor, not one to back down from a fight, and just in arguably the craziest beastman ever, goes to Athel Lorin with his thousands and thousands of beastmen and starts messing up the place. Morgor was aiming to break Ariel's power, and in fact, when he entered the forest and, and began to exude his corrupting influence, part of it spoke to the primal nature of the forest, and some of the forest spirits began to rebel against the rule of Ariel and Orion. And from this conflict, it really started a division between the elves and some of the forest spirits, particularly the dryads, who had always been a little mean and a little awful, but it really touched their spirit, having Morgor in Atholoran. And in fact, when Morgor was finally slain in the Glade of Woe by Ariel and Codel, one of the oldest treemen, it left a lasting influence, and the Glade of Woe and the Tree of Woe became this kind of cursed place within Atholoran where things don't grow right, and it's really not a good idea to linger there. This is directly overwriting the older fluff in 4th edition about the Tree and Glade of Woe actually just being pretty alright and a good place for mages to pick mushrooms. You can fact check me on that one, it's pretty funny. The 4th edition Athel Lauren is so much more peaceable and nice than the later Athel Lauren. Anyway, this is the big addition to Ariel's fluff in 6th edition, and even after the death of Morgor, Ariel realizes that she can't ever really get rid of him, because as soon as he died in Athel Lauren, when she used her magic, while the Treeman Kodal held Morgor down, she could feel him being reborn in a forest elsewhere. Kodal, the ancient Treeman, would actually go on to betray Ariel later on when he tries to stop Orion's rebirth, and for his pains ends up banished to the Wildwood. Whether or not this was part of Morgor's effect on the Treeman, or perhaps a lingering distrust. A lot of the elder treemen have never really warmed up to the idea of the elves in the forest, and the tree spirits in general are not the most reliable creatures. Ariel's Fluff in 6th edition 
is important, but it's not as central as it will become. Now let's look at what they gave her in terms of stats. This is the last time we will talk about Ariel as far as a stat profile goes, because unfortunately there is no Wood Elf 7th edition book, and the 8th edition book, while being mostly about Ariel, did not see fit to include Ariel as a playable character. Now, Ariel is Movement 5, Weapon Skill 5, Ballistic Skill 5, Strength 4, Toughness 3, 4 Wounds, Initiative 7, 2 Attacks, and Leadership 10. A bit of a downgrade in stats between additions, except for her Weapon Skill and Ballistic Skill, which both went up a point. Ariel will cost you 600 points. She is not cheap. But... With a character like this, it's all about those special, special rules. So let's see what she got. Well, she is a level 4 wizard and knows all of the spells from the lore of Athel Lauren. In addition, she gets a plus 1 to cast any spells from that lore. She has the following special rules, Fly, Force, Spirit, and Terror. She has Elemental Form. Ariel is no longer a mortal elf and is bound to the natural world with ancient and unbreakable ties. If she chooses to move using her ground movement, she may move through all forms of difficult terrain without penalty. You combine this with her wings, and she can get pretty much anywhere you need her. She has Aura of the Fae Queen. Ariel is one of the truly legendary individuals in the Warhammer world. All friendly units within six of Ariel are immune to panic. That's a nice little buff. She has Earthbind. If Ariel is endangered, the land itself will rise to protect her by entangling those who would threaten her. Any units declaring a charge on Ariel count as moving through difficult terrain for the duration of the turn. In addition, if Ariel flees from combat, any enemies attempting to pursue her roll an extra d6 when determining their pursuit distance and discard the highest result. This is particularly potent when you combine it with her elemental form, and the fact that she can fly. She can get to a lot of places, and a lot of things just can't really get to her. Moving through difficult terrain in 6th edition is an absolute nightmare, and there's a lot of units that just don't have the freedom of movement when you put on the half-move penalty of difficult terrain to get anywhere near her. She is not going to be in a lot of danger unless you want to put her in danger, is what I'm saying as far as close combat goes, which is really nice because she should never be there. Magic items. Oh boy. So... This breaks my heart. <laughs> we remember 4th edition and all of its glorious items for Ariel. Her staff, oh, so good. Just so good. And then for this, we get a single magical item. The Heartstone of Athel Lauren. A physical representation of the many ties that bind Ariel to the forest of Athel Lauren, this gemstone protects her from the effects of hostile magics. This item grants Ariel a magic resistance of 2. In addition, if she successfully resists a spell targeted at her, the casting wizard must immediately take a leadership test. If he fails, he immediately loses a magic level and may not cast that spell for the remainder of the game. Ooh, what a downgrade. And for 600 points, oh, no more casting free spells, anything like that. Now, she is a level 4 wizard and gets plus 1 to cast, and I guess that kind of makes up for it, sort of. The lore of Athel Lauren in 6th edition is good. It has a lot of utility to it. Not the most damaging spell. She's not going to throw out a lot of damage at your opponent. 
And it's going to be hard at 600 points, I think, to get that level of production out of her. She'll really help you dominate the magic phase, but beyond that, I don't know how great she is in this edition. And if you're going to ignore the magic phase, you might as well do it in 6th, because... Sixth is the least terrifying magic is in Warhammer Fantasy. I don't like it. I don't like it. I think she deserved a lot better. I like Orion's a lot better than I like hers in this edition. And unfortunately, it's the last that we're going to see her in stat form, which makes me quite sad. Let's move on to our ultimate destination, eighth edition, the Wood Elf book, and oh boy. Changes abound in this one. The Wood Elves were such an interesting faction in Warhammer Fantasy because they went so long between books. You really got so much rapid change in terms of lore and units that they seem like a different faction almost altogether by the time you get to 8th edition from 4th edition. This book came out in 2014, which meant another nine-year layover, which is absolutely crazy. I think the Wood Elves lore changed about as much as any lore changed from 4th to 8th edition, but where there was only two books in between that, instead of some, like the High Elves, for example, who got 4th edition, 5th edition, 6th, 7th, and 8th, it's much more noticeable and it's much more jarring. That being said, man, they did some incredible stuff with the Wood Elves in 8th edition here. Their lore is, oh, it's complex, it's beautiful, it's mostly all about Ariel, but that's okay because she's got a fantastic story. And Athel lore in itself really changes. And this is something that I kind of missed, and I think it was only because the Wood Elves came out so shortly before the end times came and ruined everything for us. But there's so much here that is worth exploring. I always say it on the show, and I'm going to say it again. If you have the opportunity, go through the 8th edition books. If you love the lore of Warhammer Fantasy, the 8th edition army books are so well put together. They're beautiful. They've got gorgeous art. The maps are wonderful. And they'll give you all sorts of ideas. They point out incredible things. It really was a good time in terms of lore and the things around the game. Even if you, like me, don't care for a lot of the rules that were introduced in 8th edition. The first thing we're going to talk about in 8th edition is the changes to the Forest of Atholoran. This is where we reach kind of our ultimate stage of this magical fey wood. And the differences between it and the 4th edition Atholoran are night and day. Stunning. There is really no resemblance here. Atholoran now encapsulates the entire natural cycle into itself at all times. What I mean by this is there are parts of the forest where it is always winter, it is always spring, it is always fall, and it is always summer. And each of these chunks of the forest is kind of its own realm. There is a lot here that is new and different, and again with that huge layover between 
army books, it's not as surprising as it might otherwise be. There's so much that I could talk about in terms of the forest itself and all of the interesting things within it, and maybe that will be its own episode at some point as well. But for now, I just wanted to hit on a couple of things just to showcase how dark and kind of sinister the forest can be in certain places. For example, Aranok the Summer Strand is the place where it is eternally summer. The elves of Aranok are, as you might expect, quite mirthful, always feasting, always having a good time, and they are very open to outsiders coming into Aranok, which is fairly unique amongst the elves of Atholoran, very famously super isolationist. But there is an unfortunate downside to visiting the elves of Aranok, in that they will have you join them for their feasts and their parties and their revelry, and you will eat and drink and be merry, and you won't really notice the passage of time. In fact, Sometimes time doesn't really work in Lauren, and this is one of those places. And as these visitors, these revelers stay, they get fatter and fatter because they keep eating and eating. They can't really tell when the party was supposed to end, or how long they've been there, or anything of the sort. Once they have been plumped up by the feasts of the elves, the elves will take them to a place known as the Vaults of Winter. And yes, the Vaults of Winter are in the part of Lauren that is all summer. The Wood Elves will force their erstwhile friends into the Vaults of Winter. And what lurks within the Vaults of Winter are demons of Slanesh, who will feast upon them a body and soul. Aranok itself has many similarities to one of the realms of Slanesh, centered around gluttony. It's a bit of a disturbing thing to think about that these elves have kind of become somewhat like the demons of Slanesh themselves, whom they placate by giving these trespassers, these willful revelers, to, so that they may feast on them. And that is just one story from the Forest of Lorne. The elves by this point in the lore, are very fae-like. They are wild, they are changeable, and they walk that path between life and death, light and darkness, like no other race in the Warhammer world. The Wood Elves throughout their history have done some incredibly noble things, coming to the aid of armies, of men, and other elves, and even dwarves. But, just as they will do that, they will also prey upon them, seemingly at will as well. If you're looking for consistency in action, the Wood Elves are not for you. 8th edition introduced the idea of the Weave to the Wood Elf lore. And the Weave is a neat idea because it speaks to this balance of life and death, light and dark, and it becomes a central part of the Wood Elves fluff. And also the lore around Ariel. Ariel, by 8th edition, she is the star of the show. She is Lauren. She is the Wood Elves. She is all of these things. She is their queen and their mother figure. She is the center of this entire faction. Orion 
is a bit of a chump in comparison. Not to say he's not powerful and he doesn't wield a lot of influence, but Ariel is the queen of Athel Lorne, and you best not make her angry. Unfortunately, we don't have an Ariel to talk about as far as model and rules go, but we need to talk about how Ariel is portrayed in 8th edition. The best way I can describe her in this edition is to imagine the Witch King, Malekith, mixed with Alariel, the Ever Queen. If you combine those two characters, you will get something like Ariel. She is the absolute monarch of the Wood Elves. The Wood Elves themselves govern much like their kin in Ulthuan, in that a selection of lords makes most of the decisions, and then you have the monarch on top of that. Ariel isn't always concerned with the day-to-day or year-to-year politicking and leadership of her people, but when she wants something done, she can override the rule of the council. She is an absolute monarch. And in this new lore, she is shown as having a very pronounced light and dark side. And whichever way she leans, so too do the Wood Elves and the forest itself. She is the central heart of the Wood Elf people and of the forest itself. They are all linked and they are all inseparable. This is kind of what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about how the forest made the elves part of it. Well, with Ariel's godliness, she is a combination of herself, her original self, Aisha, and the forest. So she is in the hearts of the wood elves, of the forest spirits, the trees, the plants, nature itself. And the way she goes, all of those things go. She is so important and so central to all of this. One of the great stories that 8th edition added was the story of Alisara. And really, it's not so much her story as the fallout of her death. We've spoken about this story before in the Dark Elf book. Alisara was Malekith's bride back in the early, early days before he was the Witch King, when he was an Aryan's son traveling the world and having adventures. With the Sundering and Malekith's war, Alisara had fled to Athel Lorne. However, eventually Alisara started to feel guilty. She thought that her abandonment of Malekith, when he had started down the road of dark magic and his hate-filled vendetta, that she was in some way responsible for the entire elven civil war and the ongoing strife between the Dark Elves and the High Elves. She was also Ariel's sister, and she decided that she had to return to Malekith to maybe help soothe his anger and bring some light back to his black heart. She pleaded with Ariel to help her return to Malekith and to make the trip to Nagaroth. Ariel thought this was a terrible idea, but didn't feel like she should really stop her sister from doing this, so she sent Alisara out with an army to keep her company to make the trek to Nagaroth. Unfortunately, this story does not have a happy ending. Marathi, Malekith's mother, who does not like to share her son, nor did she like the idea of Malekith getting soft or losing his edge 
his hatred for the High Elves, decides that Alasara cannot reach Nagaroth. And ever the one to have servants do her dirty work for her, Marathi tricks a High Elf lord into thinking that the Wood Elves and Alasara are a delegation from an unknown elven nation that have thrown in their lot with the Dark Elves. This is entirely not logical, but this High Elf commander has been enthralled and ensnared by Marathi, as so many have before, and he is blind to the very obvious truth of the scenario. He brings the Wood Elves to battle on the coast of Bretonia, where he had sailed his fleet, and he wins the battle... But as he kills Alasara, who herself was magically inclined, she was able to break the spell of Marathi, and he saw what he had done, at which point he threw himself from the cliffs, which was probably another win for Marathi. She's really good at this. The fallout to this was twofold. Firstly, the Witch King eventually found out about it and threw Marathi in a dungeon for some time, but more terrible than that was Ariel's fury. Ariel spent much time trying to discover who was behind the murder of Alasara. However, the magics of the weave, where she draws her power, that power of Athalorn, even with her potent abilities, could find nothing. However, she was not to be deterred, and she started delving into blacker magics. And this met with some success. Using the power of dark magic, she was able to restore a portion of Athaloran's world roots. The world roots spring from the center of Athaloran, the Oak of Ages, and travel across the world. Some of those roots had been severed by the earthquakes that shattered the Dwarven Empire, and by all manner of awful things that have happened to the Warhammer world over the years. The fact that she could restore the roots with dark magic only sent her further down this path. Using these restored world roots, she sent Orion to the Ulthwan province of Illyrian, and she loosed his wild hunt upon them. And Illyrian was very slow to respond to this new threat, as Kurnus had been the chief deity of their land. They're a very wild land. And the hesitation of the High Elves meant that Orion slaughtered his way across the province. However, even Orion, in the height of summer, could find no joy there because he was, in essence, killing his own people. Now, while this was going on, Ariel kept working and kept delving deeper and deeper into forbidden secrets until her mastery came so great that she shattered Marathi's enchantment, and she finally unmasked Marathi as the perpetrator of this entire affair. The Wood Elves then traveled to Nagaroth and laid siege to Marathi's tower at Grond. Eventually, with the help of the larger tree spirits and treemen, they would break through Grond's defenses, and Ariel would corner Marathi in her tower. Marathi, though, is clever, Far more clever, unfortunately, than Ariel. Ariel had dabbled in dark magics. Marathi was born of them. And she could tell that Ariel had started to travel down this path. Because of that, she was able to appeal 
to Ariel's dark side, to that side of her that had seen the great effects, the great efficacy and power that she had wielded with dark magic. And so she made an offer to Ariel if Ariel would spare her life. She would tutor Ariel in more of these dark arts. This was to be one of Ariel's greatest mistakes. Orion wanted no part of this, and the two of them quarreled greatly, which was an issue not only because I'm sure a domestic disturbance between demigods is quite a thing to witness, but also it threw off the weave, that balance between life and death. This is the heart of the forest in Ariel, and as Ariel grew darker, so too did the forest and the elves. They became more cruel, more sadistic, more like their dark kin in Nagaroth. The spirits of the wood, too, grew darker, and Ariel grew more reckless. Some of the elven lords believed that she had gone completely mad, and the wood elves had to start fighting to survive in Athelorn as the forest grew darker and more angry with its queen. But because they were instinctively tied to her as well, they were growing all the more darker and more savage, so they barely even noticed. Within a decade, a blink of an eye for an elf, it was as if it had always been that way. And because of the way time doesn't quite work well in Athel Lorne, maybe it always had been. During this time, the Wood Elves were far more aggressive, and they campaigned in the Grey Mountains, in Bretonia. All of this came to a head in the autumn months. Orion and Ariel had been feuding ever since Ariel had spared Marathi. And when the time of waning came, and they went into the Oak of Ages, Ariel taking Orion's ashes, there was a moment of calm. However, in the spring, the unthinkable happened. Orion was not reborn. The Wild Riders of Kurnus brought their chosen but Ariel sent them away. She would not allow Orion to be reborn. This was a disaster. Firstly, the Wood Elves could not rely on Orion's might in battle, and secondly, there was no counterpoint to Ariel at this time, and because of that, she grew even more reckless and more dangerous. This is where our friend Morgor shows up. Morgor is coming back for round three, but this time, Ariel is ready. She has a wild and terrible plan, and with the help of many of her spell singers, the Wood Elf Mages, she captures Morgor, and she brings him to the very heart of Lorien, to the Oak of Ages. Her plan is to take his power, and thereby destroying him for eternity and making herself all the more powerful. She is entirely unhinged by this point. This was only prevented by the treeman Durthru, who was not affected by the madness of Ariel. He was too old for that nonsense. He shows up in the nick of time and slays Morgor before Ariel can make just the worst decision ever. And afterwards, Ariel pouts about it for a while. She can't really do anything about Durthru, and as the decades pass, Ariel still is not allowing Orion to be reborn. She is still upset and angry, 
And the woods of Athol Lorne and the wood elves themselves are still suffering from this imbalance in this in the weave, in this supremacy of darkness over light. It got so bad that those wood elves that were more far-sighted, that had not been as affected by Ariel's madness, some of the elders and a young Cirrus named Nyath came to Ariel to try and talk her down, to get her to relent, and she would not. And things got so bad that the Wood Elves almost tore themselves apart in a civil war. This would have likely been the end of the Wood Elves, of Athel Lorne, and Ariel, if victorious, perhaps might have turned into some terrible dark goddess. However, one of the ancient treemen named Adanu, he used the magic of the weave itself and his connection with the weave to break through Ariel's magical defenses and remove the taint from her heart, this taint of dark magic, and take it into his own. And unfortunately, that act killed him. But at once, the madness passed from the forest, and the elves and the spirits awoke as if from a terrible nightmare. And Ariel had the scales drop from her eyes, and she had seen all of the terrible things that she had done. At which point, she recused herself in the Oak of Ages, to atone from her sins, and to focus restoring the harmony to the forest and her people. And her final act was to return Orion to the world. And it would be many years before Ariel would be seen again in Athel Lorne. For many years hence, Ariel would be represented by the Sisters of Twilight. They would tell the council her will and represent her in various things. Eventually, she would return as one of the last things that she needed to do to repair the damage that she had done to the forest and to the elves was to make up with Orion, as their relationship is part of the weave, is part of the forest itself, and it takes both of them acting in consort to keep things running smoothly. And there had been long centuries since the last time that was the case. I absolutely love what they have done with Ariel here. This is such an interesting story. Everything that happens from the death of her sister onward shows you that this is, yes, a demigod, yes, a being of unspeakable power, but also a very fallible one. One that is prone to those fits of rage, just as she is prone to great acts of kindness and her aspect of a forest protector, of a healer, a nurturer, a mother to her people can be at some times a burden, a corrupting influence if she isn't careful. In 8th edition, Wood Elves could use both the spells of high magic and the spells of dark magic. And I think the illustration of this story speaks to why that is and why it makes so much sense for them. And that delicate dance that they do. I really, really enjoy how Games Workshop tackled the Wood Elves in this edition. And this isn't all of Ariel's story. It's just a part that I wanted to highlight because it makes the character much more complex and more relatable. There's always a great sense of tragedy wherever the elves are involved in the Warhammer world. And for the Wood Elves, Ariel represents both their greatest tragedy and their greatest hope. 
She is kind of the alpha and the omega of this faction. And why in the world didn't she get rules? We don't have Ariel in game at this point, but we do have the king in the woods, Orion. And as we can see in the lore, Orion really does take a back seat to Ariel, but he is an important character in his own right. His lore doesn't change a whole lot between 6th and 8th edition. However, there is something that I want to cover here, and it comes from the fact that he always has a slightly different personality because you've added on a personality from an elf, the sacrificial elf, that is required to awake Orion in the spring. And the great elven families of Atholoran, the families of lords, they are the ones that supply most of the youths that become Orion. And it's looked at as a great privilege, a great honor, and they often jockey for position. And who becomes Orion is very important. Becoming Orion is very difficult because you have a single personality for most of your life, and then you have the personality of a god, the original Orion, and then all of the previous elves to a lesser extent that have become Orion. And sometimes the elf who has been chosen to be Orion can't really handle it. His psyche fractures after this transformation. And those are years where things are very hard because Orion is a little bit muddled. He's a little bit confused. He's not quite on his game. There is another issue. One of the elven pantheon called Anath Rema. She is the savage huntress. And she has always coveted Kernus's affections and doesn't make a distinction between the godly being who she loves and the form that he assumes as Orion. So on many occasions, Anathrema has sought to skew the selection of an elf that would be better attuned to her charms than Ariel's. And most of the time, this doesn't work. But not all of the time. And sometimes Orion has a divided heart. There's a bit of a love triangle that happens if Anathrema can get her claws into the elf that is going to become Orion. And we don't really know what happens during that time, except that the book says that the, that the wood elves seldom speak of those seasons when Orion's heart is divided. They simply refer to them as dark years and pledge to never let such times occur again. It's a really dark aspect to the character, but it makes him so much more interesting. Like I said before, it is very similar to the Avatar of Kane in 40k, but I think this one is done a little bit better. In As far as the Avatar goes, it's more of a clean sacrifice. The elves' spirit goes and mingles with the other spirits within the Avatar of Kane, but the Avatar of Kane is a single-minded force of destruction, whereas Orion has to be a monarch as well as a warrior. And so each of these minds, as they are added to what Orion is, change him in subtle ways year after year. And it's really interesting to see that there are years where his psyche just can't handle it. Now let's have a quick look at Orion 
in-game. He is a movement 9, weapon skill 8, ballistic skill 8, strength 6, toughness 5, 5 wounds, initiative 9, 5 attacks, and leadership 10. He still has his hounds, although he can only be accompanied by two of them. You can't build big ol' units of hounds for Orion anymore. They are movement 9, weapon skill 4, strength 4, toughness 4, 1 wound, initiative 4, 1 attack, and leadership 6. So they did get a point of toughness this edition. Orion has the special rules Always Strikes First, Forest Stalker, Frenzy, Terror, and Unbreakable. This is the first and only time we see Frenzy on Orion, which is kind of interesting. Forest Stalker allowed him to move through forest without penalty, which is, you know, what you expect. I don't know how I feel about Frenzy on Orion. I get it for those times where he is leading a wild hunt, but I kind of disagree with it in general. At least in 8th edition, you can test to restrain Frenzy, so it's not so bad that it is in this edition. His items include the Hawk's Talon, his bow, which is range 30, strength 5, and multiple shots 6. Basically an elven volley bolt thrower, except a little bit better. Especially with his ballistic skill of 8. He has the Spear of Kurnus, which makes a bit of a return, in that... Like in 4th edition, you can once again make a shooting attack. It has a range of 18, strength of 7, and multiple wounds d3. And you can actually make this attack if Orion moves, which is kind of nice. Armor saves cannot be taken against wounds caused by the Spear of Kurnos. Otherwise, if you're using it in close combat, it is just a magic weapon that does not allow armor saves. Which is fine. It's all he really needs with weapon skill 8 and strength 6. And five attacks, plus Frenzy, he's doing alright. He has the Cloak of Aisha, which now grants him a five-up ward save and the magic resistance to special rule. At the start of each of your turns, roll a d6. On the score of a six, Orion regains a single wound lost earlier in battle. That's nice. It's a good one, again. In 6th edition, his five-up ward save was granted by his Forest Spirit rule. And so in this edition, they rolled it in to the Cloak of Aisha. Last up, he has Horn of the Wild Hunt. It's an enchanted item. At the start of each turn, the Horn of the Wild Hunt grants Devastating Charge. Special rule to Orion, his unit, and all friendly Wood Elf units within six. This lasts until the end of that turn. A nice one that is fluffy as well as handy. In this edition, Orion is going to set you back... 600 points even. He is very expensive. If you want his two hounds, they're 20 points each for 640 points. 600 points is a lot to ask of him in 8th edition, but I do like him all the same. Always had a fantastic model. The Orion and Ariel models are great. I would love to get my hands on an Ariel, I think. An Orion too, but more so Ariel. I think she is one of my favorite characters. Her and Morathi are just two of the most interesting elves in the Warhammer world, and I didn't really know a lot about it until I was researching for this episode. At least as far as Ariel went, I've read a lot on Morathi because she is one of my favorites. That's going to do it for this look at the king and queen in the wood. What do you guys think of Orion and Ariel? I love them as characters. I love their backstory, the complicated aspects of it that get introduced in the later eras and the way that they affect 
Athelorn and the way that Athelorn affects them and the way that both grow more complicated and more menacing over the years is really interesting. If you have a chance to go back and check out the old Wood Elf book from 4th edition and look at the map there and it's lovely. It's got its little yew groves and its birch groves and all sorts of nice things. And then you skip ahead to 8th edition and you look at this forest and you're just like, I don't know if I want to go in there. (laughs) It's very, very different. And their relationship between Ariel and Orion and how it grows more complicated and more sinister over the years I think mirrors the entire Wood Elf experience from 4th to 8th edition. They are an incredible couple, and I would love to see either of them on the battlefield. I've never gotten a chance to play against them, but hopefully I will. I'm sure someone in our group has at least Orion kicking around. That's going to do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of The War Games Orchard. If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content, and is totally non-tiered. So for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice, and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the War Games Orchard, or just say hello. You can find us on Facebook. Our community page is the Warhammer Orchard. And while you're there, you can follow our regular page, the War Games Orchard. Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. So, good night, and to you all. Give me your hands if we be friends. And Robin shall restore amends.